looking at what Jesus and the Bible have to say about money. And I kind of made this comment last week, saying I felt like a teacher at school who drew the short straw and had to do the sex education lesson with the class. And there's that reality with that kind of thing. Everyone knows it's an important thing to talk about. The parents do, the teachers do, the kids do, but it's still awkward for everyone involved. And I just thought for us, Harbor City, like we're talking about money today, and there's a reality that there can be such a sensitivity about talking about this kind of thing in church. But I do think as a church that we're a bit more mature than that. And I don't think this needs to be awkward for us at all. I really think this is an opportunity for each and every one of us to grow and almost for God to highlight some of the things that are inside of our hearts that we may or may not know are there. So I really want to encourage you to do this as we go through the series. Would you pray with me that God would open your heart and open your eyes to see if there's anything that he's wanting to say to you? There could be some things he's wanting you to stop or some things he's wanting you to start. There could be maybe a kind of new way of thinking about money or about him that he wants you to start to see in that way. Maybe he's wanting to teach you something new. Maybe he's wanting to put some new habits in your life. Maybe he's wanting to expose something in your heart, whatever it might be. I think we've got an amazing opportunity through this series to grow as a church, as disciples of Jesus, because money and worship are so intricately linked. So I actually wanted to pray for us before I carry on at all today and just ask you to actually open up your heart before God. And if there's anything he needs to speak to you about today, that actually he would do that. So Holy Spirit, we welcome you here. And we really do just say, Lord, we, we probably all have blind spots when it comes to the area of faith and finances. And I just ask you today to highlight them, to show us what those blind spots are, to show us what our immaturity is, to show us what our wrong thinking is, to show us where we trust in money rather than in you, to show us where we worship money or other things rather than you. I pray you would expose those things and bring them to the surface. And I really do pray today for two things. Lord, I pray that you would be revealed as king, and I pray that you would be revealed as a loving father. And I pray that we would all respond to you in the way that you've called us to. Amen. Money is a really important topic for disciples of Jesus. And Craig Blomberg is this leading New Testament scholar. And he says, the way that we steward our material possessions is the most important test case of one's profession of discipleship. He's basically saying there's no Christian litmus test. There's no Christian barometer. But if there was one almost to show how mature we are as believers of Jesus or whether we are in Christ or what areas of life are idols for us, money and possessions would probably it. That is probably the best indicator for us of how mature we are and where we are with God. And he goes on to say this. He calls materialism the single biggest competitor with authentic Christianity for the hearts and souls of millions in our world today. And this idea is there is a battle going on in our world. It's for the hearts and souls of men and women all around Durban and all around the world. And right at the center of that battle are our hearts and our wallets. As crazy as that might seem, our worship with God is so linked to how we view and hold on to our money and our possessions because money matters. Money really, really matters. I think if we are going to faithfully follow Jesus as disciples, this is an area we can't ignore. We need to go headfirst into finances and faith and see what God would say to us. So if you've got a Bible, can you turn to Mark 12? We're going to read from verse 41 to 44. Otherwise, it will pop up on the screen behind me. But I think this passage has been one of the things that has surprised me as I've prepared for the series, because uh, I guess I know a lot of things about what the Bible says about how we respond to money, but this has surprised me about how Jesus sees us and money. And the passage says this, And he, Jesus, sat down opposite the treasury 
and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him. This is like this cool money object lesson. He's like, guys, gather around, gather around. Let's look at what this woman has just done. And he said to them, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put more uh, in more than all of those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. And I think what struck me about this passage is this has changed the way I've thought about how Jesus thinks about money and faith. Because I think we read this and we almost think that this was a bit of an accident. You know, Jesus happened to sit down at this place in the temple. He was praying or he was preaching or he was meeting with someone or he was just doing whatever you do in the temple. And he sat down in this place and while he was sitting there, he saw it. He saw people putting money into the box and this woman putting these two small copper coins in. But that's actually not what it says there. This passage says that Jesus deliberately sat down in a specific place in the temple because he wanted to watch as people put their money into the offering box. And I think the reason this struck me is just like, let's zoom out for a second. God is the creator of all things, you know. He is holding absolutely everything in the universe together at all times. If God was to for a second let go, everything would just start to spread apart. He, by his power, keeps everything together. And every second, I imagine millions of people around the world are praying to him. And he knows every one of those prayers and he responds to them. And he knows every one of our thoughts. And that God knows like the microscopic, tiny kind of things we can't see with the bare eye that are going on in our skin and in this room and all around Durban that we have no idea about. And beyond that, he knows the macro things, the universe, galaxy, quasar, planet, species kind of things. And he rules and reigns over all of that stuff, small and large. But that God who rules the universe and controls all of these things would stop and sit and watch people put money into this offering box because money matters to God. And as much as God knows all of those things and is involved in all of those things, God also knows and cares and watches how you and I handle money. Even the small two-cent pieces which that woman put into the offering box. And Jesus knows how you and I spend our money because he is watching to see how you and I are going to use the possessions that he has entrusted to us to use. Which is quite an interesting thing, hey? Because he wants to get excited about it. Like Jesus watches this woman go to the offering box and put in these two coins and he loses his mind with excitement. You know, I was trying to picture this a little bit, like him sitting in the temple, watching these rich people put in huge sums of money into this offering box and he just kind of lets that pass. And then this poor widow comes with two copper coins and puts them in, and Jesus just yelps, Woo! And everyone in the temple's like, Whoa, what happened? You know, people are praying, he's interrupted this thing, and he calls his disciples, because they're like flummoxed and disturbed about what's going on. He's like, guys, come, come, come. And the disciples gather around him, and he points her out. Like, maybe she's watching, and she's a bit worried now. Like, he saw me put these in. Like, what's, he's called people to watch. What have I done? But Jesus gathers his disciples around, and he says, What that woman did gets me excited. She out of her poverty gave. She surrendered to me with all of her possessions. Her life is handed over to and devoted to God. That gets me excited. And I was thinking about us going through the series and probably God doing a lot of heart surgery on each one of us as we go through this. And I almost thought of Jesus in heaven. I'm not going to do the shout again, but kind of looking down on Harbor City with this excitement, seeing us start to change, our mindset starting to change and our hearts starting to change. And he lets out that, woo. And the angels are like, what's Jesus doing now? Like, what's the story? What's going on? 
And he gathers them around and he points out Harbor City and he says, you see that group of people? Their hearts are changing to be like the poor widow who gave those two coins. They're becoming that kind of church. They're becoming that kind of people. That gets me excited. And that's the kind of God Jesus is. And that's kind of the way he looks at money. And I think we almost don't understand in this passage these two amounts of money that Jesus speaks about. And the first are these two small copper coins. Now, each one of those copper coins would have been worth one one-twenty-eighth of a denarius, which was a laborer's daily wage. So if you were working out in the field, if you were like this blue-collar worker, kind of working in farming, you would get paid a denarius at the end of the day. And what this woman has done is taken two coins that are worth one one-twenty-eighth of a day's wage. So this is nothing. The smallest possible coin that they had, like our one-cent pieces, and she's put those in. And I kind of want to highlight that because in South Africa now, you can't even use one and two cent pieces, you know? Like if you pay $5.99 for something at the shops now, maybe that's too low, $10.99, you're not going to get one cent back. They just claim that, you know, that is gone. And it's like this woman takes these two one cent pieces and puts them in the offering box and that gets Jesus excited. That blows his mind because it's not about the amount that is given, but it's about the heart that's behind it. Jesus is redefining the way that we look at and think about money and our worship, and our possession. And Jesus really cares, and he's watching, and he's looking to see how you and I handle the money and possessions and everything that he has entrusted to us, even the small things, because those things matter. And he wants to get excited about how you and I are stewarding all of those things. And it's not because Jesus needs your money. He really doesn't, but he does want your hearts. He wants my heart. He wants us to be devoted to him in every single way. Jesus wants us to be surrendered to him completely, open-handed before him with everything that we have. Because if Jesus isn't Lord of our money and possessions, he's not Lord of our lives at all. He must be Lord of everything or he's Lord of nothing. Now, I think probably the way a lot of us think, particularly if you've been in church for a while, is, okay, I know what the series is about. We're talking tithing. We're talking about giving 10% to the church. But I know how this works. I give 10% to the church And then the rest, the other 90% is mine to burn. Woo! Now, I know like we've got a lot of expenses and probably that 90% quickly whittles away and you see that on payday, you know? Okay, rent or your bond and then groceries and then, okay, all my insurance things and all of these other things quickly disappear. And then there's something left. And I think for some of us, we think, well, that is mine to use however I want. But the idea of stewardship and the idea that Jesus is speaking to us about here is that everything we have, not just the 90%, everything, our money, our energy, our time, our breath, the smallest breath in our lungs, um, our relationships, our influence, everything we are and everything we have is given to us by God as a trust to be used for his glory. This is what uh, the Bible calls stewardship. If you were to define a steward, a steward is someone entrusted with another's wealth or property and charged with the responsibility of managing it in the owner's best interest. So there's quite a few things going on in that idea. A steward's primary goal is to be found faithful by their master or the owner. You know, So when this owner entrusts them with something, they're thinking, what can I do with my master's possessions, which is in their best interest, and which is the best thing I can do for them, not the best thing for me? And when it comes to stewardship, the most important thing for us to know is who owns what and who's the steward. So when it comes to us, God owns everything. And we are his managers or his stewards entrusted with everything that is in our lives to use it for our master's best interests. 
That's the idea of what stewardship is all about. Now, maybe an illustration just to talk about this a little bit more. When I was 12, uh, family went on holiday, and um, I can't remember where we went at all, but I do remember that my parents would always get like a house sitter to come in and take care of the house. And normally there was the specific guy who would come, but he was working overseas, so he couldn't be there. So he suggested his brother, Greg. So my parents called Greg. He came around. They had the meeting, and obviously Greg made a bit of a good impression because my parents said, we would like you to look after our house. We'll pay you this much. It's these dates. Here's our details. And Greg took the keys. And Greg said, I'm going to come with two of my friends. We'll take care of your property because that's really what a house sitter does. They take care of the house. They take care of and feed the dogs or pets or cats or whatever you've got. And they make sure that the property is safe. You know, no one breaks in and steals or there's no fires or nothing goes wrong. They're there to take care of the owner's property so that when they get back, they're able to give it to them and say, look, everything you left me with is in working order. So my parents went through the drill with Greg. They went through this list of all of the things that he was meant to do and how he was meant to handle everything and alarm codes and keys and all of that. And in Greg's mind the whole time, he's just thinking, I'm 20 years old. I've got a house to myself for the next week. Party, 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 party. And we went away and we came back a week later, a little bit earlier than Greg thought we would be. And I remember distinctly, like we drove in just behind my parents' garage and these guys had their bags and they were like, cheers guys, welcome back. And they left. There were a little bit more than three of them that had been staying there. And we didn't really think anything of it. You know, we're like, that's absolutely fine. And so we went into the house and we started to notice that things were a little bit different. So in the sink, there were a whole lot of plates and glasses and knives and forks and spoons that hadn't been washed and some that had been. It was more than four people would use in a night or two. They'd obviously had a lot of people around to eat and drink and whatever. On top of that, some furniture had been moved around from the places that it had been when we left. There was a big dirt smudge in the carpet in the lounge. Obviously, someone had been tracking in dirt and going in and out. Our pet seemed a little bit disturbed. Our dog, um, Mona, was not herself, her usual personality. Some of you know about my pets, so I'll just leave it at that. And um, there was this black bag filled with bottles outside by our dustbin. I think maybe like most uh, traumatically, my dad's shorts were hanging up, soaking wet, waiting to dry, because obviously someone had put them on and had a swim in them. And maybe most intrusively, is they'd gone through our cupboards. We found um, sleeping bags, which were at the back of our top cupboards, like in each room. They'd obviously had a lot more than three people staying there during the week, hanging out and whatever else. We found some Christmas decorations that were out. They'd gone through everything we owned and checked it out. So we never used Greg again as a house sitter. But obviously that is not good stewardship. They did not take my parents' possessions and use it in the owner's best interests at all. They used it for themselves. They used it to have a big party and have a lot of fun. And in the process, they were caught out. But one of the things we see in the Bible is again and again and again that God's ownership of everything is emphasized. So in Genesis 1 and 2, the first two chapters of the Bible, we see that God made everything that exists. He made the world, and then he put the first humans, Adam and Eve, in the Garden of Eden to work it and to steward it. Genesis 1 verse 27 and 28 speaks about how we were put on the earth to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. That is what we are called to as God's stewards. Psalm 24 verse 1 says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. 1 Chronicles 29 says, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor, for everything in heaven and earth is yours. 
Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. Psalm 50, verse 10 to 12. God is speaking now, and he's kind of showing off a bit. He says, For every animal of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains and the creatures of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. I don't fully understand that, but that's cool. For the world is mine and all that is in it. And if we're still sitting here, well, at least I own myself. You know, I am mine. I'm this autonomous being. God says in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19 and 20, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This idea is that when God makes the world and everything in it, he makes us and we as his creation belong to him. And then for every one of us in this room who are Christians, who are in Christ, who are followers of Jesus, we've been bought a second time. On the cross, Jesus died and shed his blood to buy us back from sin and buy us for the Father. And that means you were bought in your creation and you were bought on the cross. You were bought in creation, you were bought in redemption, and you belong to God. You are his. Everything we have and everything we are belongs to him. And this doctrine of stewardship does what the world really fights against so strongly. It puts God right at the center of our lives where he deserves to be. Him as the master, him as the owner, him as the king of our lives. And it reminds us that in our story, really, we aren't the main characters. We're kind of side actors or parts, and God is the main character. The story is his, it's not ours. Randy Alcorn says, Stewardship is living with the awareness that we are managers, not owners, that we are caretakers of God's assets, which he has entrusted to us for this brief season on earth. How we handle money and possessions demonstrates who we really believe is their true owner, God or us. And Jesus throughout the New Testament has a number of teachings about money and stewardship. And I want us to look at one out of Matthew 25 this morning. This is one of the parables of the steward or the talents. And it says this in verse 14 to 30. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more, but he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents here. I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested your money with the bankers. And at my coming, I could have received what was my own with interest. 
So take the talent from him and give it to him who's got the ten talents. For to everyone who has more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness, in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. If you look at that parable, it's telling us a few things that we've been looking at about the stewardship idea. One is that God is the master or the king of everything. The other is that for us as Christians, we are entrusted with certain things as God's servants. And the other thing is that one day there will be this accountability moment where we stand before God and where we speak to him about how we have invested what he has given us in this life, what we've done with these talents. And probably the first thing we need to understand is what is a talent? I spoke about a denarius earlier and those copper coins. A talent is slightly different. So I think when we picture Jesus handing these out, we see, okay, one coin, two coins, and five coins. But a talent was worth 20 years worth of wages for a laborer. So this was a lot of money. The guys I was reading were saying that this is about $600,000 today, or eight and a half million rand. So think about that. The one guy's getting like 42 and a half million rand given to him. Obviously, this master expects that these guys are dutiful, they're wise, they're going to use this money well, and there's going to be a return. And I want you to think about that too. Because here in this parable, the master is entrusting great value to these servants. And I think for each of us in this room, you and I have talents too. God has entrusted every single one of us with stuff to use for his glory. And he does that because he backs you. Because he believes in you. Because he knows that you can use that for his purposes and for his glory. God is expecting you because he knows you to be able to multiply that and use that in a significant way. God backs you. And each one of these people is given a huge amount of value to be used. But I think sometimes we don't know what those talents look like for us. What is it that God has entrusted to us to use as his stewards? And those things would probably be our abilities, our spiritual gifts, our influence, our money, our knowledge, our health, our strength, our time, our intellect, the relationships we have to be used for his glory. And those first and second stewards set out and they're industrious and innovative and they go out with the money they've been entrusted with and they start up a business or they invest it well and they get a huge return. And God is really pleased and impressed with what they do. But what's quite amazing is this master here in this parable says that he's going to go away and come back at a time that we don't know. So these guys, they they wait and they start. And this third steward, because he's not sure when the master is coming back and he's worried about him, digs a hole and buries eight and a half million rand in this hole. I mean, I was thinking about that. Like if I had to uh, dig up and bury eight and a half million rand in Durban, where I would go and bury that, thinking that it would be safe. Maybe for some of you, it would just be the back of your cupboard. Just put like the sack of money in the back and just wait. But they're waiting for their master's return. And Jesus is so clever in the way he tells stories. Because Jesus is speaking, obviously, about the fact that he is going to leave. You know, he's with them on this earth. He's teaching. He's spending time with them. And then he dies on the cross. He's buried. He uh, is risen from the dead. And then he ascends to heaven and is gone for 2,000 years. And for so many of us, we are living knowing that he is coming back one day, but not knowing, thinking that the master is going to come back one day soon. And he's going to say, what did you do with what I've entrusted to you? What did you do with these gifts and talents and abilities and money and time and energy and all of the stuff that you have done? But one day there will be that moment where we stand before him and give an account for how we have used all of these things. And I do want to make sure that you all know this, that if you are a Christian, if you are in Christ, 
that your eternity is secure and that you are right with God and your eternity is guaranteed with him. This passage isn't talking about what we do to earn salvation, what we do for eternity or for heaven. It's talking about what we do from salvation. The idea in this passage is that each one of these servants have encountered Jesus and the good news. They've met with him and their lives have been changed by the grace of God and the truth of God. And now because they know that the the master is coming back one day, they want to share this message with as many people as they can. They want to use every single thing at their disposal. We want to use everything at our disposal that other people could come to know this message too and could know this good news too and could know this master too. And one day God will look at us. He'll stand before us and he'll say, how did you use these talents so that other people could come to know this good news of mine? I think one of the other things that strikes us in this passage is how God responds to their faithfulness, not to their fruitfulness if you know what I'm saying here. The master's identical statements of praise to uh, servant one and servant two should surprise us a little bit, you know, because he's not concerned. He doesn't look at them and say, well, you got me five, you got me two, you did this, you did that. He doesn't actually speak about the returns at all. He just speaks about their faithfulness. Well done, good and faithful steward. You may enter into the rest of your master. God doesn't comment on the return. He comments on their faithfulness. And almost this should challenge us because I think some of us think one day, one day when I start that business, one day when I get that raise or I get that job, one day when I'm a multimillionaire, then God, I want to obey you. I fully agree with what Grant's saying today. Your word says it. I want to live it out. It's just not for me now. But the challenge of this passage is not to wait for the five talents. The challenge of the passage is where you are now with one rand or 10 rand or five, 50 rand or 100 rand to be faithful as a steward with God saying, what would you have me do with my money and my time and my energy and everything that you have given to me? Well done, good and faithful servant. I am um, one of those people who really likes words. I'm a words guy if you're into the whole love language thing. So when I get a nice card or a nice letter from someone, I generally file that away and just save it for a rainy day. You know, Every now and then you get a good text, just screenshot that thing, put that in your favorites, and just when you need a little encouragement, just read through some of those things again. So I'm really shallow, that's what I'm saying. But I'm sure some of you are also big words people in this room. And you love that. You know, An encouragement from someone is something that just fills your love tank, and you can feast on that for a long, long time. But imagine rather than words from your boss, from a spouse or a romantic partner or a friend or a parent, but standing before God in that day. Like, I don't really know how that throne is going to look, this throne of grace, this throne of God, how big it'll be, how big he'll be, how small we'll be, how that's all going to work. But imagine standing before this king. And the Bible does speak about him having these eyes like burning flames, you know. So I think there'll be this power and authority and this humbling fear of God that comes upon us in that moment. And I think as his voice speaks, there will be this trembling and this shudder that goes through heaven because of his power. But I think as we look into his eyes and as we hear his voice, there will be a tenderness and a grace and a love too. And imagine in that moment, after all of the affirmation and approval and encouragement of this earth and our friends and the people around us, standing before God in that day, and he looks you in the eyes and he says, Grant, well done, my good and faithful servant. You've served me so well on this earth. And for those of us in this room who love Jesus, who are following him, who are trying to the best of our abilities to be faithful and obey him, one day that is guaranteed. We don't have to live in fear at all of that day of accountability, that day of judgment. 
we know that that will be a moment of celebration, that will be a moment of joy, that will be in a moment of an approval. I think it's something we can really look forward to with great joy. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. And like one of the crazy things about this passage is that Jesus is saying our faithfulness in this life with the little things that God entrusts to us will lead to responsibilities and significance in heaven with God giving us trust over even greater things. I don't really know what that's going to look like. You know, the Bible doesn't go into much detail there. But the idea Jesus is saying is that what we do in this life matters in eternity. This life matters forever. What we do now, the decisions we make now, matter forever and ever and ever. And I know some of us in this room are disqualifying ourselves. As I speak today, you're beating yourself up, saying, I don't do enough for God. I don't try hard enough. I haven't achieved enough. I haven't done enough that one day God's going to be really proud of me or that the people in this church would think that I'm amazing. But remember that poor widow with just the two coins and Jesus' excitement over her. It's not about size. It's not about achievement. It's not about all of these things that we do. It's about being faithful in the season that we are in with what God has entrusted to us. So I want to encourage each one of you, don't beat yourself up and don't be hard on yourself because you're not doing all of these things. But the question that we all need to be able to answer today is, am I being faithful with what God has entrusted me with in this season of life that I find myself in? And it ends in verse 21 and 23. Enter into the joy of your master. Imagine that moment standing before Jesus where he says that kind of don't have an idea of how great that joy will be or how all of that is going to look. But again, there are rewards to be had in eternity. And those rewards are based around the decisions we make and what we do in this life as followers of Jesus. Again, I don't fully understand that. You know, I think of that moment of entering into the joy of God, into the festival, some translations would say. And being with Jesus is enough to me. You know, Seeing him face to face, getting to hear his voice like in a kind of one-on-one way, getting to spend time with him. I don't know what Jesus would be into doing in heaven, but I want to do that with him, you know. And just having all of eternity to spend time with him, that to me is enough of a reward. But as we read a number of these parables, we see that there will be other rewards in heaven that we will get based on the decisions we make in this life. And that is a motivation to each of us in terms of some of the decisions we make and what we do. There will be rewards in heaven for you and I. I just want to ask you today, is eternity and those rewards coming into your mindset or the decisions you make in this life? I think it's so easy for us with our heads down and the busyness of life, all that's going on in Durban and in our world today, to forget about eternity and how long that is and how much that matters. But Jesus wants to remind us of those things. I think like maybe the thing I've struggled most with this passage and this message for today is it's all king servant, you know, master servant stuff. I think for a lot of us, we struggle to relate to that. And we don't particularly like that. You know, we like the language of Jesus saying, you're my friend. Or God the Father adopting us into his family as sons and daughters. Beautiful imagery. But it's all of those, king and servant. It's father and son or daughter. It's Jesus and his friends. It's all of those things. But what I've thought about is how we are Jesus' servants and how everything belongs to God but how God gave everything up to come down and serve us. And that's kind of what has blown my mind recently, is that God calls us to be his servants, but God, not owing us anything at all, came down to earth and took on the form of man and served you and I, not because we deserved it or because he owed us, 
but because he loves us so much. And that struck me, how Jesus would go to the cross and suffer so much for you and I. And in Hebrews 12 verse 2, there's this verse that says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. I think of Jesus in that Garden of Gethsemane moment. He's praying the night before he will be crucified. And he prays this prayer and he says, Father, not my will, but yours be done. It's like this amazing stewardship prayer. It's like Jesus is standing before the Father, open hands, and he's saying, all that I have and all that I am is yours. He's saying, listen, God, what you're calling me to with this cross and everything is going to be really, really hard. If there's another way, can we do that other way? But still, I give you everything I am and everything I have to use the way you think is best, not my will, but yours be done. Kind of the prayer of the steward is that prayer of surrender and that prayer of devotion to everything that God calls us to do. And that's the call that you and I are called to and that we probably fail in every single day. As I thought about that, I just thought of how impure my motives are and impure my decision-making is and how wrong the choices I make are so often because they're about my will and my pleasure and my joy rather than Jesus's and what he's called us to. But Jesus, who didn't have to die for us, came down for the joy set before him. He did it in obedience to the Father, but he did it in love for you and I. And I just thought of him dying on the cross, surrendered to the will of the Father, and looking 2,000 years ahead, Glenwood Prep School, October 2018, to us, this church meeting here, singing songs of praise to him, praying to him, studying his scriptures and his words and his commands, and thinking of people who have been reconciled to God by what he has done, and him saying the surrender is worth it, you know? Laying down my life for that is worth it. I think for us, Harbor City, we can sometimes not see our stewardship in that bigger picture in terms of us trusting God and walking with Him and being led by His Spirit to say, everything I have and everything I am is yours. Use me for your purposes. But almost as we leave here today and as we go into our homes and a work week and the busyness of life and all of these things, it must be good for us just to stop with our arms open before God and say, all I am and all I have is yours. This week, as I go into this week, would you take what is mine and would you use it for your glory? Because for the joy that is set before us, as we give and as we pray and as we love and as we serve and as we sacrifice, we know that there will be a knock-on effect on people's lives and on people's eternities. And one day we will see the reward, like Jesus will, in heaven, of people who have been impacted through the decisions we've made and the obedience that we've had. Can we stand and pray just for a bit? I don't know if you're willing to do that today, but if you're comfortable just to close your eyes, I think this is a moment of stewardship and it's a moment of faithfulness. I think the challenge of today's message is, am I being faithful where I am with what God has entrusted to me? And if not, what do I need to change? So I just ask you now, Holy Spirit, just to come upon us as a congregation. I ask you to speak to us. I ask you to fill us. Lord, for each one of us, I know we fail daily at this stuff. And we want to grow and we want to get better at it. But I just ask you even now to highlight to us the areas that you are calling us to give over to you. The areas of surrender that you're requiring from us. And more than that, the power that we need to live this stuff out, Lord. I just think of selfishness in our hearts. Not wanting to sacrifice, not wanting to let go, not trusting in you, trusting in other things. And I just ask for a freedom to come upon us even now. 
I ask you, Holy Spirit, just to speak to us and that we would know your will. We would know what you're saying. We know what you want of us. We know what we need to do. We know how we need to change. And we pray for the grace to do it, Lord. We are your servants. We are your stewards. And we really want to serve you, our master. Amen.